Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone. Hope you're well. Uh, just a quick heads up here at the top. This episode does involve discussions of suicide. So just wanted to let you know. Now onto the show. Sandspants Radio, Australia's most procedurally generated podcast network. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Dimorellis. This is the show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show we have a guest who was born in England but has been based in Australia for about the past 25 years. Uh, she's a full-time firefighter with Fire and Rescue New South Wales as well as a mental health advocate and a published author of Standing on My Brother's Shoulders, a book about coming to terms with a loved one who is also a key emotional support committing suicide. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Tara Lal, great to have you. Thank you, George. It's great to be here. No worries. How'd I go? That was good. I summarized things nicely. Do you have any questions, issues yes. with what I just yes. said? My, my only thing would be um, try not to use the terminology committing suicide. Um, so we try to say died by suicide. Died by suicide? Okay. Died by suicide, yeah, or, or took their own life. But yeah, yeah, just um, because it, it kind of, when you use that term, it has a lot of stigma attached to it around it sort of denotes we're talking about a crime. And how that can impact, you know, so we try to change, you know, gently change the language that we use around suicide oh. um, to one that's, yeah. Okay. That's a, I was originally going to be like, oh, I'll edit this out to make it smooth. But actually, that's a valuable thing for people to know. So, yes, thank you. Because actually, when I was preparing, I was like, this seems like a strong way of saying this. Like, I felt like, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I think it's really important to have that conversation. And I never, you know, because it's so commonly used and, and it's something we don't really think about. But, you know, when you say commit, that most people, the first thing that they associate that with is a crime. Yeah. And and that is one of the things, you know, that in, in past, in history, suicide was considered a crime. And so, you know, I think it's really important that we just very gently kind of reframe that conversation and, and think about the language that we use. Um, and how that might make somebody feel who has perhaps been impacted or bereaved by suicide. You know, so I think those sort of gentle things around language and how we use them and what they mean are really important but can make a very gentle but subtle but important and meaningful shift around how we perceive suicide and how we talk about suicide in the community. Yeah, like I, I definitely, like I think it's almost, it's funny, this is going straight away into the PC, oh, you can't, you got to say it this way instead of that way, but like all it is is doing what kind of happens naturally anyway when language changes over time as different power structures and people realize different things. It's just being more conscious of it during that process. So I don't think it's a, yeah, no, I 100% agree. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I kind of don't think of it as PC stuff, yeah, you know. I, know. I just think it's it's kind of just language and to think about, you know, because I think that's the same thing about when we use talk about resilience, you know. We talk about resilience, but what resilience means to different people at different times is completely different. And so when we that can result in a whole load of miscommunication when we think we're talking about one thing and somebody who's receiving that conversation or the other end of that conversation is talking about something completely different. Oh, like how do you mean with that so, resilience? I would have thought know, that was pretty clear. How do you mean? Well, what do you think of when you think about resilience? Um, what do you think it means? I would say uh, it, to, in the most simplistic sense, uh, mate, like pushing through. Essentially, like not giving up. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that, and and that's. I think that's the thing. You know, that, that actually resilience is is about so much sort of more than that. And in fact, pushing through can be damaging when we push through and past emotion rather than processing emotion and processing emotion and walking into it and kind of being with it is a really important part of resilience. Yeah. So actually pushing past, and that's where, you know, lots of firefighters will talk about pushing past emotion and pushing through, but actually that can be, that can be unhelpful and, and it's what, you know, that unprocessed emotion actually does damage to us. So, you know, resilience, actually, when you think about the core skills and traits of resilience, it's things like, um, you know, being able to sit with difficult emotion, being able to ask for help when you need it, being vulnerable, all of those sorts of things are really important. Mindfulness is a key skill in resilience. So being able to stay with the present moment and watch our emotions and observe our emotions without responding to them. But that's quite different to just pushing past. Yeah, no, look, you've you've uh you caught me out. I tried to I tried to go cover all bases, but no, you're you're actually hundred percent right. The phrasing is like clearly I like in my head I'm like, no, no, but I meant but I'm like, no, no, actually no, you're right. Because that phrasing definitely indicates ignoring and shouldering and just like powering but like yes that could work but that's not really health and not long term and not healthy i guess so yeah i get i get what you're saying yeah yeah no sorry i wasn't no, trying no, to I'm catch just... you out at all i wasn't trying to catch you out i just you know i always like to you know just to help people to think more broadly around the language that we use generally and that's whether we're, whatever whether we're talking about suicide or resilience or anything you know to think about what's the context of that and and that gives it its meaning and therefore how because that enables us to communicate in a con- constructive way so where we're all on the same page and trying to kind of pass on information and knowledge and share knowledge and we can't share knowledge and therefore we can't really grow and learn if we're not on the same page and we're not speaking the same language effectively. <laughs> yeah, look, you're making me think of like so many relationships where I do think the issue of definitions was a big one between the two of us. Like, as in, we just, uh, it would have helped if we actually just showed each other what dictionary meaning we were using when we were saying certain things. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, sometimes language is limiting, you know, and I think there's so many other forms of language that maybe we're not attuned to um, that I think if we were more attuned to, you know, and, and we know that 80% of communication is nonverbal anyway. So, um, you know, if we tuned into those other things, um, then, you know, that might help us to communicate more effectively as well. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, no, I, I, I sometimes wonder, I think people actually are pretty reasonably attuned a lot of the time just because uh, who listens to words? <laughs> you know? It just seems like no one listens to words ever. Everyone's too emotionally based a lot of the time. So I don't know. Um, But I guess you mean in terms of interpersonal communication. But yeah, 
I feel like a lot of times words don't mean as much as people like to think they mean versus just how you're giving yourself off to the other person and the other person picks up on that. Do you feel otherwise? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we live in a in a matrix where, you know, language is one of the tools that we have to communicate and that we can miscommunicate through language as well. But, you know, also being in tune with people and I think um, on, on a kind of deeper level and, and how we communicate and our non-verbal body language and all of those sorts of things. I think there's so much to good communication and it's so valuable when we communicate well, but we kind of get a bit misled where either we react in response to really strong emotion and perhaps that's not helpful or, you know, we misread someone's language or all sorts of different things or their body language. So there's so much scope for things to go wrong, but there's also so much scope for things to go well when it's when it's done well and when it's communicated well but you kind of have to be very grounded to be able to do that and very in tune with yourself to kind of be able to do that effectively yeah no look i 100 percent. it's it's something which uh it's just because like i have a habit of like sticking to words and like not reading the situation so i'll be like i was saying everything accurately but it's like yeah but you weren't actually understanding what was going on and you were presenting it so, so like it's taken me a long time to appreciate how like words are garbage basically they forget them they throw them out no one cares no one listens it's about how you like the other person's taking in so much more than that so and i I, sometimes i feel like it's a guy thing but like but what do you mean it's like yeah your words words don't matter versus how you all the other stuff going so i should just i should just get rid of my book and you know burn my book oh yeah and i should cancel this podcast immediately never read again i agree Uh, you know what I mean. Come on. <laughs> I do know. I do know what you mean. <laughs> I, I do. I'm just, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know what? It's it's like anything. It's, it's how it lands with the person, the meaning that that language or that communication has for the person who's receiving it. That's what ultimately matters. And that can be different, mm. you know, for, you know, when you're communicating with anyone, whether you're speaking or listening, it's, it's what it means to you. And, you know, when people read my book, what they take from it, well, each person takes from that is completely different depending on their own experience and their own how they are on the day when they read it or that moment that part, point in their life or their past experience what they take and what that book and what those words mean to them that's what's important mm. do you know what I mean not the words that are actually in it and what I meant when I wrote it it's what it means to them and I think that's why you know books and the good books, you know, are, are so amazing because they're books that you can keep returning to and they mean something different to you each time you read mm. them. Like it's somehow they, they feel like they're giving something to you no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. So I know what you mean. Um, yeah, yeah. Actually, so so like usually I'd go into the book, but like actually probably start off, let's give some grounding to some context I think might be necessary in this instance considering. Um, so because your book, uh, Staying on My Brother's Shoulders, it's about your eldest, your older brother, uh, taking his own life when you were 17 years old and you kind of dealing with the aftermath of that for yourself. Did you, like, how long ago did you write the book? Uh, So I started writing the book in 2009, actually. Um, And then it took me, you know, I I, I had never written before. I didn't know how to write. I had no idea what I was doing. So it took me about seven years and it was published in 2015. So, yeah, from 2009 to 2015 is kind of I was writing and obviously redrafting, you know, learning as I went going through all, 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 the, all of the process of trying to publish a book really but um you know it took the first draft took me about a year to write of just and it was really not a book it was just a me going blah and just kind of a, a jumble of words onto the page of what 
I felt that just kind of came organically really and was written very much, you know, pen to paper, sitting down at the beach, looking over the ocean and, and kind of processing my life really. Yeah. No, look, firstly, uh, I think it's probably good that you took that long considering it was your first book and first time writing. It's a, it's a good <laughs> sign, if anything, some real care put in there. To, to give some context from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, essentially you growing up in England, you had uh, some family issues based on a father with quite severe mental health issues and then your mother um, passed away quite early by the sound of it, um, unexpectedly. And then you were kind of leaning on your brother as the emotional support figure in your life. And then unexpectedly and not in any way indicating it, considering how you looked at him, he then took his own life. Uh, the reason I'm giving this context, because just, I guess, from the journey from there to when you chose to write write the book, that's a that spans half the world and there's a lot of story there. So I'm not going to ask you to detail every day, but I guess essentially because this is what I'm interested in is like why you wrote it now. You know what I mean? Like I understand why you wrote it, but like what was that journey to get to that point, I guess, essentially? Because I think I very much think it's going to tie into your choice of book as well. So, yeah, what was like kind of associated there? Yeah, I mean, there were, you know, from when, I mean, obviously, as you said, there were many things in my childhood that were difficult from my father's quite severe mental illness. He was variously diagnosed with depression and bipolar disorder and schizoaffective disorder. And he was hospital, he was in hospital for various periods during my childhood. So obviously, that was, you know, difficult. Um, and, you know, he had a traumatic childhood himself. And then my mother got cancer when I was eight, and then passed away when I was 13. And, my father was then admitted to a psychiatric hospital. So at that point, I didn't really, we didn't, there was three, me, my brother and my sister didn't really have a, a either parent around. Um, and so as you said, I very much looked to my brother and he was my rock and I, I just trusted him and he was the person that protected me and made me feel safe at a time when the world didn't feel safe. And I didn't know how to grieve and I don't think either of us knew how to grieve, but, but we just knew that we were there for each other. Um, and so... You know, as you said, when he took his own life, I that was the point. Although there were many things that defined my childhood, as I said, around my mother's death and my father's illness, it was that his death that really defined the before and after. And after he had died, I found a lot of his diaries that he'd written um, and he expressed himself through writing in his journal. And it was just, the writing was just unbelievably eloquent tragic beautiful but for somebody so young to have written those from when he was probably 17 18 19 years old to write the way that he wrote was just you know I couldn't even write that way in my 40s um and I had a sense from then that if they were written in a way that he wanted them to be read or he wanted them to in a way they weren't written like he never wanted anyone to see them and I very much felt that and I always felt like I needed to do something with his words, but I didn't know what that was. And I was obviously, you know, for the next 15 years after he died, really, I was just running away from all my pain and my grief and, and all these things that I just could wasn't able to process. I was terrified. I had panic attacks. I didn't feel that I could express my grief or anybody understood. Um, you know, I moved to Australia and I just didn't really ever speak about my past and I had sort of put it away until in my early 30s really it was only um, a few things that happened that kind of made me realize that 
I just wasn't the person that I wanted to be and that I was struggling and, you know, I had I wasn't able to hold a healthy relationship and I had a relationship breakdown, which very much, which I felt always that the my response to that relationship breakdown, which was only a short relationship, was so far and above what our kind of normal react, re- reaction would have been. And everyone would say to me, oh, well, it's normal to be upset. And I was like, but I knew I had this sense of something bigger than that. <laughs> Um, I also attended the scene of a suicide as a firefighter and I had a visceral reaction to that where I just felt like I was like going to be sick um, and it wasn't a gruesome scene but uh, the man had died in this in the same way that my brother had died and I at the same time as that I had a friend who attempted to take her own life um, and all of those things it was like all these signs around me that were saying you've got to stop Tara you have to go and look at what's going on in your life and you have to because I previous to that I would if, if I heard anything to do with the word suicide I would literally try to block my eyes I'd, I'd turn the telly off I'd, I'd do anything I could to avoid because in my head my brother's death he, he didn't take his own life I couldn't accept that he just he took his own life he was different to how I perceived all these other people mm because he was this shining, beautiful, you know, tall, dark, handsome, a very gifted straight A student who went to Oxford University, who was compassionate and kind and had a huge, you know, and he was the person that everybody wanted to be and all the girls wanted to be with him and all the boys wanted to be like him. And he was my, you know, I just looked up to him. He was everything. So I couldn't accept that he would take his own life and I couldn't even think of him in the same word or the same so I blocked it all out in very many ways. And, I, you know, part of my process was to acknowledge that and to realise that, you know, when I had a relationship breakdown and I didn't realise for many years after that actually that was, I felt that that was, his death was a rejection of my love, that my, my love wasn't enough to keep my brother alive. Wow. And because I felt that, how could I possibly have a healthy relationship with anybody and I didn't realise that. I had no idea of that, of why I was so kind of hypersensitized to rejection and, and many other things, you know, like when you have a traumatic childhood and, and now I know so much from an academic perspective about trauma and, and childhood and adverse childhood experiences, that it does change how your neurological makeup and your, your neural system is made up. So you are literally hypersensitized to stress or to certain external triggers or triggers that might trigger memories and those sorts of things and the way that they're imprinted within our bodies and our brains means that we do respond and react to things in ways that are not the same as what we would a normal perhaps what we might call normal response or if if those experiences haven't happened and I I started to realize that and understand this and all of these things happened and it was like, I have to start to turn towards that. And that part of that process of turning towards was starting to go and see a, a psychologist and to work through and peel back all those layers. And that probably was, you know, in my early 30s. And then, you know, those things happened over time. And then around 2009, which was when I started writing the book, it just, I had done already done been doing some therapy for a while, but I just felt like this is the time, and I was ready to basically go back to my brother's diaries, and I I pulled my brother's diaries out and I transcribed them all, and that and initially I started writing because I wanted to give him a voice for his pain and his suffering, and that was why I was writing, 
and it wasn't really a book. And then I started, because of the things that were going on in my life, I started just writing for myself in terms of that, just getting everything out and just writing my life story down. And then over time that kind of morphed into this kind of dual dialogue of partly, you know, that it wasn't just about my brother and his voice. It was about my story as well and my journey and how I was trying to make sense of that. So it kind of, the book evolved and changed, which is part of the reason why it took seven years. And because I, when I started writing, I wanted to write a happy ending. And my in my head, my happy ending was, you know, I met someone and got married and had children because, you know, in my head, that was how I defined that my life was a success. And that was partly in due to the fact that my, my mother had written us all a letter before she died. And in that letter, she had written, I hope one day you'll get married and have children and give you, they'll give you as much pleasure as you've given me. And it was a beautiful letter, but I held that, that I needed then to do that. And so much of society tells us that we, you know, for as females especially, that we in a way, you know, that we should, that's what we're supposed to do. We're going to get married and we're going to have children and it's all going to, you know. And so, and then I was writing and this didn't happen hmm. and I didn't have a, a happy ending. And actually as that evolved, I'm so glad I finished it the way I did, which is we're constantly evolving and and, and constantly learning and growing. And actually it isn't about an end point and, and about my own realisation that, you know, I thought if I can get rid of my wounds, if I can just get married and have children then I'll be fixed. <laughs> yeah. That, and I'll be better. Always a good solution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. marriage and forced children. That's always going to fix any underlying issues, definitely. Yeah, and a nice kind of clean endpoint, you know, and, and then I realised that that's not the, you know, that I actually, it is so much about just building that rich tapestry of your life, you know, and that when I learned to hold those wounds much more gently, but to acknowledge that they're a part of me and in a way that those dark colours within that tapestry make the colours, the bright colours, so much brighter. Mm. And that I live, because of my experiences, I live a very rich life, a rich emotional life that, you know, when I experience, you know, pain, I experience it richly. When I experience grief, I experience it richly. But equally, when I experience joy, and I experience that richly. And and I think that that's what my experiences gave me, a, a richer and I guess returning to the, the, you know, the book when we get to it um, that I chose is is about giving me a deep meaning in my life. Yeah. For what my life means. Okay. Well, firstly, um, okay, there's so much there. Uh, so let's go into the book now and then we can jump around because I think that grounding was very helpful. Uh, so your chosen book for today is? Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. A uh, very, uh, it's probably one of the, I'd be very surprised if most people haven't heard of it or read it um it's relatively short and it's extremely powerful so uh in summary a psychologist or th- uh, th- uh, psychiatrist he gets it's about his story going through the concentration camps um i'm not sure if it was auschwitz uh but then he and it's about his journey through there and kind of analyzing how it was all going from a bit more of a mental point of view um rather than anything else so it's like looking at even the guards as well as the other prisoners and kind of what was required to survive and what was involved in not surviving and the interesting and that sounds like a weird word to use for such a situation but the 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 insights you could draw from it uh in terms of even what what constituted strength in those places and what didn't and what kind of what man got reduced to and then learned to accept of themselves and everything so it's a very very i mean i think just the book summary 
psychiatrist in concentration camp gives analysis is already a bestseller, just that phrasing. But the fact that it's also very powerful and well-written and it leads into his concepts about his own therapeutic programs. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a quick, short summary for anyone who wants to, wants to know what the book's about. My first question would be, uh, when did you first read it? Um, well, I was given the book by a very dear friend of mine who's like an, an Australian sister to me, really. Um, and she gave it to me in 2015, just after my book had gone to press. And it was such a timely, so I had already written the book, it had gone to press. And then she gave it to me and she wrote me a, um, a beautiful note in it, just saying how proud my mother and my, my brother would be of me. Um, and that I was living my purpose. And I very much felt that through my book. And we, at, um, just prior to that, when I'd first written, completed my first draft, I think it was, she had taken me to see a film the hero's journey um, about Joseph Campbell. And and it was just so resonated with me at, in terms of my own life journey. And I think the book, when she gave me that book, it just, it, it, it was exactly how I perceive life really and how important and how my journey through life had so much been about the meaning in it. And and that it was so timely to be given that book and to read it then. And I kind of just went, it, you know, it, it's so much about, as I said, what you read into a book when you read it is about where you're at in your time, in your life, when you read it. And that was just the perfect book for me to read at that time. And it's a book that has kept weaving its way into my life in, in strange ways where, I, you know, it's amazing. And that's what I think makes it such an incredible book that it, it, each time I've return to it and sometimes not even consciously but it's just woven its way into my life in all sorts of different ways and and now with my um you know my study and my phd as well it it weaves itself into that Mm. yeah it's interesting because like you're uh you some people you could say maybe they're going through and they read it then and it gave them some support there but for you it was very much you'd kind of uh gone through your own personal journey with your own insights and and come to a place of like acceptance of what had happened in yourself and then you got it there and it's like okay this is now you're almost prepared especially at that moment to then take this on board and be able to look back and analyze it now that you've had a bit of yeah you kind of gone through some steps yourself and then you're getting it which is different to like getting it at the start yeah yeah and I think there's something that I've really that's kind of again I've really felt or certainly with my life is that have, like living the experience of my life on a um on a really emotional level and having to process it and, and, and a cognitive and emotional level, but particularly on an emotional level because I wasn't very, um, I wasn't able to be in touch with my emotions for a lot, long part of my life. So I think there's something about living the experience um, in, in an emotionally connected way and then learning the academic or stuff around it that, that gives it a different texture. Sometimes I think when we learn you know, academically the, in, or cognitively, the, the things of, through reading books or, or learning cognitively, that can almost be a, um, a hindrance to experiencing the emotional experience of that. And to really get depth, you have to experience that. You know, it's like a meeting of the head and the heart. And I think so much of the time we, when we learn things academically, we, we're very cognitive up here in our head, but maybe a bit disconnected from the experience in our heart or in our body and that sense of felt emotion that connects the head and the heart. And I think in a way I was, I kind of just lived that organically through my own process of trying to make peace with my life. 
And then since then, I've started to learn a lot more on the academic front. And that's actually been really helpful for me to be able to understand it from um, a much more multidimensional perspective rather than just from a cognitive perspective. Yeah, I mean, you just exactly you just said what i was trying to say but a million times better and clearer because that's yes that's what's interesting isn't it like no one no one should read a book until they're 30 that's what i always say that's <laughs> it's a difficult one to balance but like the life experience versus taking it all in but yeah i do think uh the way you did it was perfect essentially to be able to get that multi-dimensional look um to go back to that actually because like you you it seems like you had interest in uh mental health side of things uh, how when did that interest start i guess is just to clarify as well. Yeah, that's a really, I mean, I think, I've, again, it's kind of, you know, it's what is fantastic about getting older is you get to kind of join all the seemingly random dots of your experience and your knowledge and kind of link them all up. Um, so I started, my first university degree was in physiology, um, which was actually what my father had studied. And it, it you know, so essentially how the body works on, on a cellular and um, organ level. And so because I was fascinated by how the human body worked and I know I loved sport and I wanted to do, I thought about sports science and all these different things. Um, And then I moved over to Australia and I actually became a physiotherapist. So I became a physiotherapist and was, you know, again, because I was passionate about the human body, but I also wanted to help people. and, and And I found it amazing, the human body amazing. And whilst I was a physiotherapist, I worked in chronic pain and chronic pain has a, you know, a large psychological component to it as well. Um, And I guess around that time, I was also starting to recognise my own kind of issues, if you like, around mental health and, and, you know, having, I don't know whether, you know, I I have, when you look at my medical certificate, it says depression, anxiety, you know, to me, those things are, it's about what's your experience in the world and, and what can I do to help myself? So I, you know, I think I probably have had, mild depression and anxiety but for me it's much more about trauma and and about making sense of my life so I became um and I think it was during that process and joining the fire brigade and then there were many things that sort of shifted me more into the mental health space so when I joined the fire brigade um and then joined the peer support team and the critical incident support team at fire and rescue which basically we provide on a voluntary basis support to firefighters who've been impacted by some of the trauma that we see um and so I started to see people who were deeply impacted as well. And also through writing my book, thinking about my father and his issues around mental health and obviously my brother. And as I started to be able to start to think and, and look at what had happened to my brother and process all of that. And so that all became really important and look at, you know, what I now see was really severe depression, anxiety and complex grief from his perspective that were impacting his mental health. Um, you know, all of those things really, and you're working in chronic pain, as I said, and then becoming a firefighter and then becoming a mental health first aid instructor. Or, you know, that, so it, I very much gradually shifted into that world of mental health and, you know, but having the background in physical health as a physiotherapist was really beneficial and as a, a, uh, having a degree in physiology to be able to layer on the understanding of mental health in terms of our bodies as well and what happens. And now I really, that integration of body and mind, I really, really 
I, I, it helps me to be able to understand it from a physiological level and to understand trauma and understand mental illness from a physiological level as well as from, I guess, a, a more emotional and, and spiritual and mind level. I'm like you've said so so much that I want to go into. It's like just trying to keep track of what I want to go first. So to go on that last point about the the body versus the mind, I guess in terms of uh, that relationship, um, because yeah, I think people can sometimes not appreciate. Yeah, because I want to almost break that down again. There's two ways to it, right? Both how the body impacts the mind, how the mind impacts the body. Because I had a, uh, a previous guest on actually who recommended, um, he read this book called The Mind Body Prescription. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. Um, it's essentially- Oh no, I haven't. So he, was, uh, he dealt with sev- pretty severe chronic pain his whole life that had slowly like, gotten worse and worse. He was getting older. It had meant he'd had to change careers like three different times essentially because of how much the pain was debilitating him. And- no one could really give him an answer. And then he read this book, which was a base, a basically about the power of your mind to impact how you feel things. And his claim was, and this, it's, it feels wild for me to even say this. And I, he, just because I've had this conversation with him and he's a very reliable person, I can say it. But his basically claim was he read that book and he stopped hurting because he went through all the exercises that were in this book and showed him how much the pain that he was going through had nothing to do with his body. It had everything to do with unresolved emotional issues from his own life. And yeah, he swears up and down about it. It's it's a, and I've had someone else yeah. mention it as, as a very helpful tool for them. So now I'm, I'm an evangelist for it, even though I haven't used it myself. So yes, I totally get, uh, which is one half of it. Were you referring to that side of things as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and again, a similar, there's a book called um, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, and it talks much more about trauma. Um, but again, it's speaking really about that, about the embodiment. And as a physiotherapist, I used to often, you know, when I'd be treating people and I'd, and I'd think, you know, I'm helping them not because I have of what I'm actually physically doing with my hands, but there's so much more to it. And sometimes, you know, when I would re- you release somebody's neck and they would just start crying because you've released that emotion. And and I very much felt like it's more than that. It's not about what I'm doing. It's about that interaction. It's about how that person experiences that pain. Hmm. And the emotions and where we are in our head at that time are impacted by all, you know, can impact how we feel that pain, how we experience pain from a neurological perspective, you know, in terms of chronic pain. It's often the, the pathological cause of the original pain is actually gone, but these neural networks are still activating over and over. And the, the the kind of environment within which those neural neurons act in terms of our emotions and our experience in the world have a huge impact on how those neural networks kind of work and whether they're upregulated or downregulated. So all of those things of that kind of physiological space we put our things in, but that emotional space, that they're, they're so intertwined, we can't possibly, you know, take apart. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Part, one of the reasons why I stopped doing physiotherapy was because, you know, the biomedical approach that we have to, uh, to medicine and to health at the moment, whilst it has amazing and it's brought us so much, so I'm, I'm not disregarding that at all, but, you know, it's so much disallows that bigger context of a holistic approach because to prove that something worse works, we have to have gold standard evidence, and that is a double-blind randomised control trial. But you, when you're treating somebody as a person and you're treating their shoulder, you, you can't control for all of those factors that influence how somebody experiences that pain. Mm. And so it's very difficult to get good, strong evidence for certain therapeutic approaches. And, and certainly in that more psychological domain and more um, spiritual or emotional domain, we can't prove that. So it doesn't fit in our medical model. So I felt very constrained working as a physiotherapist that I shouldn't use, I couldn't use things or it didn't really acknowledge the greater kind of health of the person overall. And I wanted to be able to do that. And I didn't feel that within physiotherapy I could really, really do that because it didn't allow for that really holistic approach, which is what I certainly learned through working chronic pain, but also how I perceive the world. Yeah, I guess it can be hard to measure because, like, you don't know if it's the emotional side of things or it's the physical side of things, and you can't really tell until, like, yeah, I can understand how that would be very hard to measure. The The idea, I think, and it is because what you mentioned, that's something I've actually seen before, but, like, the idea of how emotion, uh, a physical thing can just trigger a long-held emotion. It can sound so strange when people hear it, but yeah, that would be a very powerful experience, I imagine, actually being the one to do that to someone. So you actually saw that live in front of you. You would you would actually have that happen. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can you, you can see people having emotional responses to treatment. You can you 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 know, and on so many levels, and you know, and it's about the fact that you have that you know all of our sensory you know that you have a sense of touch. And it's something someone's feeling cared for. You have a, a two-way interaction. You have, you know, when somebody comes to you in pain, and they obviously because when people are, you know, you're treating somebody, they talk to you, and then you build a relationship, and they tell you about stuff that's going on, and and you think, wow, this is huge, and 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 then you release something, and as I said, it releases. You can feel that emotion held in their body, and sometimes you could just teach someone how to breathe properly. And then neck pain would go away. Yeah, that's. And I mean, there are lots of some of that's a physiological mm. response, absolutely. But it's more than that, and it's it's that integration of all of those things. So, absolutely, the physical is so important, and the, and there are pathological things that happen to make people unwell or cause pain. But we're always set in the context of the environment in which our body is, and that is includes the emotional context, that includes the environmental context, that includes the relational concept 
context of a therapeutic relationship and and how that is. So so yeah, many yeah, levels. no, I understand. Like as in, it's it starts in one, it might go to the back to the brain, then it comes back to the body, then back to the brain. Like as in, it's a cycle that's all involved at the same time. So I understand exactly. Yeah, yeah. What you mean. and that's how our neural system works because you know if our sensor, the way that we perceive the world is we receive sensory input through our five senses that go travel through different receptors in our body up to our brain. But then our, also, our brain also detects how we move and how we react and how we act and respond. So it is a two-way, it's a constantly, mm. you know, our, we can't dissociate our brain and our mind from our body and then in, in all sorts of yeah. ways. No, 100%. Like I, I'm a big, like one of the things I'm a big believer in personally is uh, whenever you're angry, punch something. It feels great and it does let it out. It's a, it's. It just lets out that energy. Um, so that that's what. So I guess the opposite conclusion there is that was that something you dealt with personally at all, or was it just something you saw in your patients? Uh, the idea of the brain impacting the physical, I mean, physical manifestation of emotional issues. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm I'm very aware now that you know I think we all have certain points in our body where our um, they're not they're points of perhaps vulnerability. So maybe if we're predisposed to back pain, then often there might be emotional things that will trigger us and it will come out, we'll experience that as back pain, say. And I think, you know, nothing in particular, but I'm aware now that my body will tell me when there's something perhaps emotional going on. So the way that I often experience that is I'll get a tightness across my throat. And that tells me, you know, I've learned that that tells me that there's something, there's some underlying emotion within my body that I need to get in touch with, identify what that is. And that this itself is not the emotion, but it's something underneath that. And that is very much to do with the, the, you know, what I experienced as kind of silencing throughout my childhood and not having a voice and, and um, being able to not, yeah, not having a voice throughout my childhood. So I think that's where that comes from for me is that it will always go there. And then I've learned to kind of unpack that and go, okay, well, what is, the emotion beneath that and I think we all have default or dominant emotions so for me through my childhood I learned to be sad I could be sad and I could do grief like that was just the default of everything went into grief and sadness but what I didn't have any idea of was how to experience anger I had no idea what anger was I was like everything was just sad and I also didn't know how to experience joy like I didn't know what joy was. I didn't know how that felt. I didn't know the that, that how that felt in my body. So I couldn't experience joy or anger. And that's really damaging because really to live your richest life, you want to experience all these emotions. And I think, you know, for a lot often people will have, you know, anger might be their dominant emotion. And certainly often for, you know, perhaps for a lot of firefighters and more so for men, perhaps it's more, you know, accepted as well to, to um, experience emotion as anger. But maybe there's other things actually beneath that anger that it's not anger, but that's the dominant emotion. So, but maybe that we're trying to actually not acknowledging some other emotion that we don't know how to get in mm. touch with. And I think, you know, so for me, it was definitely this, this throat thing um, was definitely my physical cue that something was going on and to be able to sit with that and identify and then be able to get in touch with, as I said, for me, anger and joy, which are both things that I've learned to get in touch with, which is really important. And to sit with those, because I think anger, you know, and I guess that's where I, I come at it very, you know, I think when people, you either express it explosively by 
you know, and, and not to say that it's wrong to express that by hit, hitting, you know, if you go boxing or something, but or you kind of swallow it and it becomes a depressing energy, but to just be able to hold the anger and recognise and acknowledge it and experience it for what it is within your body in terms of a burn, you know, for me it's that burning hot flame of, of just rage, to be able to hold that and experience that so that then when I respond, to it, all it is is telling me that there's something that's happened that I don't like. And that's really useful information because if I don't like that, and I've allowed myself to experience it, then I can respond from a place of wholeness in a way that comes from a place not of aggression but of strength and use it as a strength to guide me to say what I want in my life and to act from a place of respect and groundedness that becomes a constructive thing rather than a destructive thing. I mean, that sounds like a... (laughs) Next level way of handling anger, I got to say. That's like, uh, yeah, no, I have a, I'm always of the opinion now I'll, I'll deal with the anger on my own somewhere else. <laughs> I'll hold it in until then, just because, like, in any conversation, it's going to block a healthy, uh, just like, basically topic. Like, trying to hash out the actual issues. Anger's great to tell me something's going on, but it's not that useful in the actual scenario to try to resolve the situation in a way that's probably healthy for everyone so no absolutely and in fact it ties into going back to Viktor Frankl's book because you know he one of his things is that between a stimulus and a response there's a space and in that space is a space for growth and I think that there's so much in that and that's what I mean effectively that's what I'm talking about when I talk about holding the anger so I'm not you know that to to be able to sit in that space of growth to understand what is it that it's telling me? What is it telling me? What is this emotion telling me that I can use to guide me rather than responding or reacting to mm. that? And that's what I really, you know, resonates with me. Again, it didn't at the time when I first read the book, but when I go back to it, I go, absolutely, that's how I experience that. If I can sit in that space between, then I can sit with what's it telling me and then. If I, if I can use it to tell me something and guide me, then that becomes a constructive and growthful thing rather than just responding to the emotion to discharge it. Because some of that, you know, like, boom, explosive, you know, even if you're not uh, overtly doing something destructive, it's, it's kind of disseminating that anger. It's a way to just blah, get it out. Whereas actually if we are able to hold it gently, we can use it and we can use it as a guide to help us behave and respond and react in a way that perhaps is growthful and and more, um, you know, can help us and guide us to grow more rather than to just still stay as we are, which I think is where, you know, going back to that resilience conversation, you know, I often, and in my book, I talk about post-traumatic growth because I see it as I didn't want to go back. Most, a lot of people talk about resilience going back to bouncing back. Whereas I think, well, I didn't want to go back because I didn't want to be the person I was. I wanted to use that to grow. And that's the beauty of, you know, trauma can help us to grow, but it's the struggle in that space between that allows us to grow. And it's the struggle. And again, Viktor Frankl is, talks about that. It's the, the, the struggle and the tension that he talks about. That's what creates the growth. It's not just, you know, a simple, you know, we need that tension mm. to grow. Um, yeah, like I guess, I mean, that's very uh insightful and you're making me think now uh 
looking at that, if there's a difference between, let's say, what your father went through with his more depressive symptoms, which seems to be more of your brother's experience, versus your trauma uh, as a result of those times, it seems like a very clear connection between yourself and man's social meaning and also kind of the firefighting side of things as well. That all seems very much uh, deeply connected. So I guess, is there any... um, does that make sense? Is that a fairest thing for me to say or is that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, 100%. And I mean, it's something I think, you know, I've started to, I, I did a case study actually for a book called, called What is Post-Traumatic Growth by Miriam Akhtar. And that, you know, that was also part of my journey, I think, to really understand trauma and what it is and understand trauma. Because when somebody first said to me, oh, you know, that perhaps I'd experienced trauma, I just thought, no, I haven't. I've just had a couple of bad things happen to me. You know, that's all. That's what it, you know, like I didn't think, I didn't, I had no idea. And then, how could you, um, you know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that, but that's just like, what what more do you need to be experiencing trauma? You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) yeah. I mean, you know, I think, I think a lot, again, people, what I understood trauma to be and what I now understand it to be is very different. Um, And I think, you know, and suicide is a traumatic death. And now in my study and in, in my research where I'm looking at the impact of suicide on firefighters and obviously working with firefighters over time to see what how trauma impacts them and that trauma is so much broader than what we originally evolved from, which a lot of it was to do with the military and, and going to war and we thought, or, or um, you know, sexual assault and, and those that sorts of trauma was how we kind of would generally think of it. And actually, we know that suicide is a traumatic death. And we also know that there's a thing called intergenerational trauma. So where my father had experienced a lot of trauma during his childhood, um, you know, and I always question that is, you know, did, was my brother, what my brother experienced, you know, was that related somehow to my father? And we also now know that when you experience trauma, we it can it can lead to what we call post traumatic stress disorder but it can also and more commonly lead to depression and anxiety as a result of trauma so we we kind of overly focus on this idea and this notion of post traumatic stress disorder but it's the way that trauma manifests is in so many different ways and and as it was for me i i didn't experience post traumatic stress disorder but I did experience symptoms of depression and anxiety as a result of the things that had happened to me. And now we know with firefighters that it is about that trauma load so that, you know, because as firefighters we're exposed to, to regularly to potentially traumatic events, that they just, it's not often one event that causes us to have a reaction. It's that chipping away of one thing on another, on another, on another. And some of those what we call kind of there's an aspect of trauma around moral betrayal and moral injury when we have to um, act or behave in a way that transgresses our core moral values. And, you know, there's so much around suicide that also links to that and that all of that is that kind of complex trauma that we experience and that can manifest as depression, it can manifest as post-traumatic stress disorder or it can manifest in all sorts mm. of ways as in, for me, like the difficulty in having relationships because trauma fractures our relationship with ourself on many levels. So to, what I learned was I had to heal the relationship with myself through learning how to feel my body again and feel emotion because one of the ways that we deal with trauma is to dissociate from emotion 
because it's too much. It's too much for us to bear and to cope at that time to deal with the intensity of the emotion that we're experiencing. And, you know, sometimes I think maybe it was what I had to do was to turn away for 15 years because I didn't have the strength at that point to turn towards it. But, you know, we I learned that I needed to heal myself to be able to heal my relationships. And so I think we put too much emphasis on mental health and mental illness as a result of trauma and as the cause of suicide, when actually it's about so much more than that. It's about our social health, our ability to connect and that sense of connection. And going back to Viktor Frankl's book, it is about meaning. And for me so much, it's about our core meaning in life that gives us that sense of purpose and direction and and solidness of kind of how we orientate ourselves to the world and to life. And I think suicide, part of how what the reasons why suicide is so confronting is because it kind of violates that inherent primal instinct that we have to survive. So we can't process that. It kind of we it disorientates that inner inner compass that we have that tells us about where we are in life. And because of the way that we live now, where you know, we're so disconnected from that, many of us, for what's our meaning? What is our actual meaning in life and our purpose that keeps us wanting to stay alive? And I think, you know, that is why I think that book is so central and so important and has also been very much important for me of, you know, finding my own meaning and making my own meaning from my experiences in life. And I think we we all, everyone's experience is unique and there is no one universal meaning or purpose but it's about how we find our own meaning mm. in life. And that to me is so central and so important. Yeah. No, um, I, yeah, I just say like, I, okay. Um, you keep throwing so many things I want to talk about at the same time at me. It's, it's, it's too much, but it's a good side of the conversation. Um, so I guess uh, just a quick one. You mentioned the moral questions in firefighting. I, 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 that's, this is just me curious what that means when you say that. Like, it just sounds, I wouldn't have thought it was a morally ambiguous industry. Yeah, the language is, is very, it's difficult to, to because it, it, again, what it means. But, um, you know, moral injury originally came from um, the military where perhaps you were, had to witness or commit an act that you was against your inherent value. So it transgressed your core moral values. But there's kind of a now a realisation and that it's broader than that. Um, so I think that sense of, you know, sometimes when we're at a scene and we aren't able to help because of whatever, maybe because of the situation and the things that we weren't able to do, which we think we could have potentially saved a life, um, and that that causes us, it's the things that we aren't able to do and we haven't done and we haven't acted on that sits in that very subtle kind of place within us that isn't who we are because our core of what we do is to save life and property and saving life when we haven't been able to save life for whatever reason is really confronting for us. And sometimes that's about, you know, organisational things. Sometimes it's a sense of, you know, um, within the system in which we work of, of betrayal, of not being able to, not feeling 100% supported by this, the organisations and the, the systems in which we work that don't necessarily always enable us to do what we 
what we feel we could have done that might have potentially helped us to save somebody's life. And there are all sorts of things that contribute to that. And they all sit within that matrix of trauma and what we do. And, and they all kind of add and, and accumulate through our careers. And we know that some of the treatments for traditional post-traumatic stress disorder aren't actually effective because they don't address that. And it's what sits often within that moral concept is kind of shame. And, and that's a different response to a fear-based response, which is a trauma response. That topic specifically sounds like the most in some ways related to the Viktor Frankl's book in terms of going through something like that and the slow accumulate, like, because that, that moral question, you're saying it like that. And I actually hadn't thought of it like that, but I guess that's essentially what another big issue was, which he confronted quite overtly in the book was like the idea of uh, you, you get reduced so much. You, you, you throw away so much of who you are that at the end, you're almost wondering who, who you are. Like, as in you lose a sense of, yeah, you get that your worldview shattered because as he said, it's quite, it's quite in, like honest in a brutal sense, but like he, I remember one line sticking out to where he just said, the worst of us survived. Like the best of us didn't make it because they couldn't, because you just couldn't through something like that. So the, the, the people that survived are actually not, yeah, the best and brightest and the, and the kindest, they all didn't last. And it was just the people who, which is like, maybe it's true, but I think more it's just you get confronted with something that you get reduced to and you can handle and you come to realize what you'd throw away, I guess, for the meaning of your life. And so like to come back from that, that's a, that's a difficult thing to do. And uh, it, it does sound kind of like it relates because like that idea of seeing someone or being in a situation where you then sit there and be like, I could have done something and you didn't. That's, yeah, that's that's some fundamental traumatic stuff we're talking about when you say that. Yeah, and especially when your whole identity, because, you know, when you work in a uniformed service, your identity is so much based around being a rescuer. Mm. You know, that's what you do and you wear a uniform and you identify as that person. So it really compounds that sense of I should be able to do something. I should be able to fix. People are looking to me to help, to, to save somebody, and I failed. If I feel I failed in some way, oh, I can't, you know, so there it's, it changes being, doing the job that we do over a period of long in time does change who you are and how you perceive yourself as well. No, I, I, I that's actually a valid point as well. The, the, the reinforcement that'd be going on there uh, of the job you're meant to be doing. And then, yeah, what, when you might feel like you're flying in the face of that. So that's made me think of something. And actually, this was something I noted as well when I was looking at what you'd kind of gone through. You, your original tragedy that occurred to you with your brother was you dealing with a very personalized trauma, something that was happening to you that was very hard for anyone to understand. And you would feel, especially back then, I mean, now there's obviously a million blogs and places you can probably get support, but even then it always feels very personalized. Whereas something like, again, the concentration camps and like the firefighting, yes, every tragedy is still a personal one, but you have this shared thing of everyone's going through it as well so like which can be bad as well because you can always feel like oh but no one's noticing like this still hurts for me even though everyone's going through something like this but do you see what i mean about those two different things so i guess i i I wonder with that is did you notice that was that something which like you felt or yeah yeah and i think that's a really interesting question because i think you know we know I mean, all of our, we can all be put in the same situation, but the way that we experience that situation is very, very different. So even if, you know, 
from Viktor Frankl's point of perspective, you know, that he was with people that were in the in the concentration camp and experiencing the same things, but how they how they personally experience that trauma will be different. And you know, and I certainly think that as well. But equally layered on that, there is that sense of, you know, we we are hardwired for connection and that sense of I'm on my own and nobody understands me is really powerful in terms of how it impacts us because that, you know, and I often say that, you know, the most at the heart or the essence of life for me anyway is that connection to ourselves through self-understanding, but that connection to other people as well and being able to connect and part of that is shared experience, but also connection to the world around us and, and you know, to the environment in some way because it connects us to, to life more broadly. And I think, you know, so there is something about experiencing the same thing, trauma with people that can be protective if we can come together because that gives us a sense of connectedness of shared you know sharing that trauma is can be really helpful but having said that is often you know with my own experience when after our mother died I wanted it to unite us but the when you are experiencing trauma because it is how each person experiences that is different it can also be disconnecting and compound it because you've, you, you're actually all experiencing it differently. So you want it to unite, but people are a different in coping in different ways, and that can be disconnecting. So you know, it, there's that's a very valid point. There, I, there's both. It can be, can be good or or, or not. Yeah, so no, that's good. I didn't even consider that. That's that's a very very valid point. Uh, just because I don't want this conversation to go on too long. If, so let's just switch now because there is one other side of the book as well, which I discussed, we kind of touched on a little bit and we'll just talk about this and then we'll quickly uh, finish off. The the logotherapy promotion stuff that he gives in this book, this idea of finding meaning, which is interesting because we up until now we've been talking about very specifically trauma and its impact and how to manage that. But I felt like his philosophy that he developed in the camps and then he promoted in his book, which is the best marketing push for a new therapy ever to put it in a, one of the highest rated books of all time. But also the, uh, and it's something he believed his whole life and that's how he managed his own experiences. But it does sound like it's, from my reading of it, it's appropriate to everyone. You don't have to have gone through something horrifically traumatic to still find this approach useful. Um, Although I have read since that maybe it's not the most scientifically rigorously proven, but when you come to something like psycho psychology, it's all not scientifically proven. <laughs> not to dismiss, I'm just saying is that's just how science works. Um, so yeah, to to go on the positive side, so let's talk about that. So in terms of the meaning, did you? Uh, because you said you related to that, was that meaning something you found? Uh, was there a noticeable point where you found that meaning or is it something you look back and you go, oh, no, I did have this meaning in my mind as I was searching. Do you know what the – could you put into words what the meaning is or is it – yeah, is that is that a part of you because you said you related, so I'm just wondering. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's something that is constantly evolving and changing all the time. Like I don't think it's a static meaning and I think um, – you know, one of the things that Viktor Frankl talks about is, is you know, every instant in time and every day there can be different meanings. Um, and, you know, I think for me that first half of my life in a way that this kind of I felt, I, I think I always felt like I had this little fire inside me 
And I just, it was smothered for a long period of my life through everything that happened. And I couldn't break free of that. And I couldn't find a way to feed that fire. And I I think now it's funny, you know, being a firefighter, we go and we do fire end sessions where we talk about good fire, bad fire. And, you know, good fires, you know, are used for cooking. And so we can eat and they nourish us and they provide warmth (laughs) and and those things. And, um, you know, and I think I would add to that my inner fire. You know, we all have that inner fire. And I had that, um, but I couldn't find it. And I couldn't find a way to let it nurture. It was smothered through everything that happened. And, you know, I often talk now about being a firefighter and the destruction caused by fires. Um, And certainly, you know, having experienced all the bushfires, you know, I think we all are aware of that. But that also fires create devastation, but they also leave ashes to the ground. And through those ashes, growth can emerge. And I very much feel like that. And I feel like that's a real metaphor for my life in terms of, of the fires that cause destruction, being my brother's death and my mother's death and my father's illness. But that fire inside me and that fire inside me has been the meaning in my life. And actually the meaning in my life is so strong and has evolved because of the challenges that happened to me. So I do agree with you absolutely in that Victor Frankl's book and, and his his method of therapy, logotherapy, never actually really took off at all. But it is is so important for all of us. Whether, but I think when something really tragic has happened, it it's it can give us more meaning. It's, it gives us an avenue to find meaning and to feed that fire. And that fire within me has always been to make a difference to the world and to use my experiences to make a difference to the world. And that I am able to do that. And I've now at a point in my life where, like I said, where I can draw on all these bits of my life, Um, you know, being a firefighter, having written my book. um, You know, I recently cycled across Australia and and raised money for for Lifeline and had conversations around mental health and suicide. And um, all of those things, being a mental health first aid instructor and, and working in the critical incident support team, all of those things have helped. And now doing my PhD and what value that is so much based around meaning, you know, and how we make meaning from our life. And so it's like that fire inside me and the meaning of my life has just grown bigger and bigger and be- bigger. And through all of those things in my life, certainly in the last um, 10 years or 15 years that have made that fire brighter and they all feed into that purpose and meaning in the end to make that fire bright. Mm. I mean, that's, yeah, that's uh, on that, yeah, I guess the idea of finding that meaning and trying to help others is, yeah, that's not actually that as common as maybe you feel it might be. I feel like a lot of people don't find meaning that way. So, yeah, that, that, there's something in that and then just keeping the fire going. I guess that's an interesting one as well uh, to find a meaning, yeah. Yeah, I think we all have a fire. Do you know what I mean? We all have a fire in us. That's that innate human will to survive I just think we have to find a way to feed that fire within us in it and and I think that that's for me that's what's at the heart of meaning and and it doesn't have to be a huge thing you know if I think one of the things about not having children I think is that we have to find meaning in other ways and there's so that we can ease there are so many ways to find meaning and it doesn't have to be it can be a day-to-day thing it can be a tiny act of kindness but that sense of something bigger than us that we're serving a greater purpose that's beyond just ourselves is so important. And, and I just think we've, for many of us, we've lost that. 
you know, we've lost that because we're so busy because life's so hectic and chaotic and there's so much going on and technology and it's bombarded with it. There's no space and there's no time to nurture that fire within. Mm. And and that's what I feel like is at the heart of kind of people's health and well-being is finding that fire and nurturing it in in a way that can serve something bigger than than just us. No, definitely. And uh, yeah, don't get me started on the ugh, the old giving birth to a meaning of life is uh, it's lazy. It's lazy. Let me tell you. Um, okay, no, that's that's very beautiful, and I think it's very true. I. I guess we should probably close it off there just because I feel like I could talk to you talk to you all day, but <laughs> maybe our listeners don't want to listen to us all day. So I... No, I, I haven't tied your head in knots. People do often say to me, Tara, you know, that's just, wow, that's just too deep for me. And I, I often do think, I wish I could be, I was saying to someone the other day, I wish I could just be a surface no, dweller. No, you I don't. I want to be one of those surface dwellers no, of life that can you just, know you, you know, don't. life would be much easier. <laughs> you know you do I know, but I sometimes do because life would be so much easier and it's just like if there's a difficult way to do it I'm gonna do it the difficult way and I'm gonna dive under and I tie my own head in knots and in the process I often tie other people's heads in knots as well so I hope I haven't no this is is nothing please you're talking (laughs) I should start a thing about overthinking every single thing always and also yourself overthinking it and also overthinking every emotion you feel and everything I'm all for that Give me more yum, yum, yum. I love that. So don't worry. You're talking to the right guy for all that. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, that's, that's my issue. We could go all day. That's my problem. Um, no, thank you very much uh, for being on. Um, you're, would you like to give a shout out to anything, anything you're doing at the moment or anything you want people to like look at uh, before we sign off? No, no. I mean, if you want to know more, my website is uh, Um, and that's kind of to just tell more about the, the work that I do really and my book and some of the articles I've written and research and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, just feed the fire within really. It's a, a beautiful sentiment to end on. Well, thank you very much, Tara. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Oh, it's my pleasure, George. Thanks so much for having me. Nice. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you can have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's SansPantsPlus.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 